Before we get into this episode, I want to issue a disclaimer. Amir and I like to have fun and make jokes during these meetings, and obviously certain topics lend themselves to greater opportunities for levity than others. Nevertheless, we will always try to keep it as light as possible where appropriate. We talk about all sorts of monsters from government agents to killers to actual monsters, but we will always be supportive of the victims of violent crimes. Included in the show description, there will be more information about some great nonprofits to help victims and their families that you can donate to to help the cause. With that said, let's get into the show. Welcome back to Conspiracy Club, the only podcast that actually comes back from an indefinite hiatus. My name is Tom, and I am, of course, joined by my co-host, Amir. Say hello, Amir. Yeah, I, you're right. Shit, I don't, I've never heard of that before. Usually they just stay gone, you know? Like, they, you never see them again. The Beatles never came back. <laughs> That's true. That hiatus is still ongoing, I think. Of course, there's been lots of uh, theories about where we might have gone, and we will neither confirm nor deny whether we joined a cult or were abducted by aliens or were engaged in something else. Yeah, or dis- that's for you to wonder, and maybe it'll appear at some other point. Yeah, maybe it'll come up later on that you'll find out. Maybe we'll like randomly. I'll tell you right now, we've dropped random hints of what happened to us through every episode from here on out. And you got to listen to it, and you tell me. You put it together, and you tell me. You don't think Tom did it, but he did. So if you're good enough, and you're eagerly (laughs) enough, and you listen to this episode, he'll accidentally drop what happened to him. I'll let you know now. Yeah. But you have to listen to every single episode we post from start to finish, including the ads. Yeah, and including, especially, especially the ad portion. Because if you listen to the ad, me and him put something in there as well of what happened to us. That's right. And sometimes you have to play the episode in reverse, and mm-hmm, then mm-hmm. the message comes out. Yes. And sometimes it's just snuck in there on a different frequency. So Right now, I'll give you an example. Resnebotep. Rewind that. Rewind <laughs> that right now, and I guarantee it's going to be something about what happened. Well, anyways, folks, it's been almost four years since we posted, but we are back, and we are ready to begin hosting regular meetings of Conspiracy Club again. So if you're a new listener, welcome. If you're an old listener, welcome back. We appreciate you all the same, and we're really glad that you've decided to join the club with us again. Uh, We really hope that you have a good time with what we have in store for you. Without further ado, Vicky and Bill Weggerly met when they were in high school at just 16 years old. Despite being very young, the sweethearts knew that this was not just a fling. They were meant to be. And just a year later, they got married and settled in Wichita, Kansas. And a year after that, they welcomed their first child into the world, a girl named Stephanie. Eight years after Stephanie, their son Brandon was born. Everyone that met Vicky knew that she was gentle and kind, and more than anything else, she loved being a mom. Vicky would visit with other moms and share parenting advice, and volunteered to watch the kids in the nurseries of the multiple churches she attended. Vicky also loved playing the piano, and she would play it for her family who just adored her. Overall, Life was really good for Vicky and Bill and their family, but in the fall of 1986, that would all change. On September 16th, Bill decided he would drive home on his lunch break 
to spend it with his wife and son. On his way there, he drove past a 1978 gold Monte Carlo, the exact same as their family car, except someone else was behind the wheel. Bill thought it was odd, but he shrugged it off and continued on his way. He arrived to see their car missing, and when he walked into the house, he saw his son sitting by himself on the floor, the rest of the house completely silent. He started calling out for Vicky and walking around looking for her, figuring she had to be nearby somewhere, because she wouldn't just leave their two-year-old son all by himself like that. But when Bill walked into the bedroom he and Vicky shared, his heart sank. Vicky was tied up on the floor and unconscious. Bill called 911, but Vicky tragically passed away hours later in the hospital. So they said the son was just sitting at the table? The son was sitting, like, I think in the middle of the living room. Is he dead too, floor. or is he... No, he's, he's all good. So what was he doing? I don't know if he was in distress um, or anything like that, but he was alone sitting in the living room floor. If I'm the cop, you know he's going to jail. Lock him up. Husband, you're going right in, buddy, old pal. I'm telling you right now, it's over. Pretty quickly, detectives in the town began to suspect Bill as the killer. Bill had failed a lie detector test given by the police and then hired another polygraph expert to test him again, which he also failed. The biggest thing going for Bill was that the police had found skin under Vicky's fingernails and the DNA didn't match with him. This key piece of evidence would not make a difference in the rumor mill though. Stephanie, who was in elementary school at the time of her mother's death, recalls kids in the playground telling her all about how their parents would talk about how Stephanie's dad had definitely killed her mom. Even though the police never gathered enough evidence to charge Bill, they also never gathered enough evidence to charge anyone else, so the rumors grew and grew. By the time Brandon got to middle school, parents were warning their kids to stay away from the Weggerlies because they were bad people. But why is she getting blamed for what happened to the like between the mom and dad? Like, how is he a bad person? His mom died, and he was there. He was well, too. They're just guilty. Stephanie and Brandon are just guilty by association, I guess, is the whole thought process that they, whether they are aware or complicit or whatever with the killing with their dad, if they know he's responsible, I think they're just like, the dad's a killer, so they got killer genes. He didn't even go to jail. That would be the part that sucks too. Like, I didn't even go to jail for it. I can't say I would not have also, as a kid, done the same thing. Like, I almost killed somebody in that household. And I guess the rumor is probably nuts by that point. It's probably like, you know, like he killed the mom and Stephanie watched. Like, it was probably something crazy by that point. Well, so the thing, too, is that, like, you'd think if the investigation was days or weeks or even months, the rumors grow, and then they make an arrest, and they go like, well, we know it was Bill, or we know it wasn't Bill, because somebody was arrested mm -hmm. but this one just goes on and on for years and so it just kind of gets out of control and their lives are kind of irreparably damaged both by the loss of their wife and mother and by the the rumors do you know if they moved from the that house you know i don't know for a fact it would make sense i don't think that they left kansas or at least left wichita um but I, I would, I guess if it was me, I would move out of the house too. I would move, yeah. Because, I mean, this is back when you moved to the next town and nobody really knew. 18 years later in 2004, there was finally a break in the investigation. At the local newspaper, the Wichita Eagle, 
Reporter Hearst Laviana was leaving his office when an editor handed him an envelope. Laviana was busy, and he figured whatever was in there could probably wait until he got some time. But that afternoon, when Laviana finally opened up the envelope sent from someone identifying themselves as Bill Thomas Kilman, he realized this was huge. He quickly began going through all the items, and when he realized that this was not a prank, he picked up the phone in his office and he called the police. Inside the envelope sent to reporter Hearst Laviana were photocopies of Vicki Weggerly's driver's license and pictures taken of her at the scene of the crime. When police looked at what Laviana had, despite so many of them being certain that Bill Weggerly had to be responsible for his wife's death, they knew they were all wrong. These items would be key at unlocking the case because police had not been able to find Vicky's license when they searched the Weggerly's home and because no photographs had been taken of the crime scene. This package would prove to be just the beginning. The killer would go on to taunt police and news outlets with haunting pictures and documents including puzzles, chapters of an autobiography, and disturbingly posed dolls. All the while, the yarn on the murder map began pointing in one direction. The renewed media attention led to the Kansas Bureau of Investigation being flooded with thousands of tips, and they used this new momentum to begin gathering more than 1,300 DNA samples from potential suspects. So it's not her husband, Bill. So it's possible that when they first got it and they they might have still suspected because Bill was the person that found the body. He could have, I guess, presumably taken the license and disposed of it. And then, you know, he was there. He could have taken pictures of her body. Isn't the writer's name Bill Thomas Kilman? And then it came from someone named Bill uh, who identified themselves as Bill. And it's possible that at that point, they maybe were like, oh, this seems pretty suspicious. But I think then as the more and more packages and documents and stuff begins to show up, they start to circle some people or maybe one person in particular. And then they realize that it couldn't possibly be Bill. Get that about a fucking bitch, dude. Fucking, that has a suck. <laughs> that would be the literally the worst thing ever. How do you get your, like, there's probably jobs he's lost because of this. Oh, yeah. Uh, Everyone just looking at him funny. Houses he's had to move out of. All that. And just for it to not be you, he should be at the sue. He should. Well, you know what? I actually think that they did sue. Smart. I would have also said I think, I, I believe, I don't have the details of the lawsuit, unfortunately, but I believe that uh, later on they sue the person responsible. Uh, I, I don't know what their case was, I guess, but they did sue, I, I believe. I would have sued the person responsible. I mean, he's going to end up in jail, so I, that's kind of, it doesn't really mean much. Like, right. legally, like, make his commissary negative, but like, right. <laughs> like, I would probably sue. Could you sue the Kansas, the Kansas Police Department? Like, I don't know if you could. I don't really know if there would be like a real lawsuit to be made towards them. But it's like, I don't know. You could have cleared me. You could have like came out and like cleared, cleared me. Like, he didn't do it. Everybody, just relax. Right. As opposed to just like, I don't know, but we don't have that much evidence right now. Right, for 18 years, too. It's like, we're all pretty sure he did it. Yeah. We just don't have the evidence. They turned him into OJ. Like, literally, he was that child. <laughs> like, oh, he was like, we know he did it. But, like, 
we don't have the the right stuff. That's besides like saying, what sick son of a bitch breaks into a house, does what they did to the uh, mother, and then just leaves a two-year-old just there. Maybe at the time you could even argue that's maybe more of a suspicious red flag for Bill. Yeah. Because maybe he had some marital anger or whatever you know was directed at his wife but he's like i do love my kid so Mm -hmm. they can live that would be the nail in the coffin for me because i'd be like okay so kill your wife kid's still here kid's normal so that means that when you came into the house i would just automatically assume that the kid just knew it was you so he wasn't expecting anything because i mean if someone's getting like murders like i would assume they're yelling not that i've experienced it but i'm just saying i would just assume that someone would be Yelling if that happened. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe dropping a hint of what happened to me over this time period. But uh so I would just assume that yeah, it would be you because you left a kid, kid's fine, wife's dead, everything's normal. What's going on? I don't know if it looks like there was like a like a tore up place either. Like I don't know if it just looked like the house was messed up. I'm not understanding the process of how it all happened basically. Like and no one well, saw. Well, we'll get we will get into some more of the details later. But okay. I do have one question for you right now. Where were you on the morning of September sixteenth, nineteen eighty six? I was not alive. <laughs> I wasn't even in a nut yet. Like I was, I was nowhere, dude. <laughs> I was up in heaven. I was up in heaven. <laughs> Likely story. I almost Likely flipped story. it. On you. Don't make me flip it on you and ask you the question. Where were you? I'm the. I, I'm asking the question. I'm just saying. I, where were you, January six? Where, where, where were we? <laughs> oh, oh no! You know what, dude? Dude, I don't know what you're doing, man. Okay. All right. All right. All right. All right. All right. Any, Moving on. Any, anyways. <laughs> Vicky's killer, relishing the attention, continued leaving messages around town in envelopes and cereal boxes. In one letter, the killer asked if they communicated with a floppy disk, could that be traced back to them? Detectives, as instructed by the Slayer, placed an ad in the Wichita Eagle, assuring them that it could not. Two weeks later, KSAS-TV received a package with the disk containing encrypted metadata that would slowly begin leading detectives to the truth. At the station, forensic software was used to recover deleted and hidden data which revealed that it had last been used on a computer traced to Wichita's Christ Lutheran Church, and even better, it had the first name of the user. Police cross-referenced this with information on the church's website, and when they drove by the suspect's house, they saw a black Jeep Cherokee in the driveway, a vehicle previously caught on tape dropping off one of the packages. At this point, the police were all but certain they knew who Vicky's killer was, but they still needed to find the smoking gun, a DNA match for the skin under her fingernails. Police knew they couldn't directly ask their new suspect for a DNA sample. That would require them taking him into custody, which they just weren't ready for yet. Instead, they'd have to be more creative. Learning that their suspect's daughter had recently been in the hospital for a gynecology appointment, to secure the judge's orders for the hospital to turn over a sample of DNA from her pap smear. That DNA was sent for testing, and within 24 hours it came back as a familial match. 
The Weggerly family and all of Kansas could finally rest because the police knew, without a shadow of a doubt, that they had finally caught Vicky's killer. They arrested the suspect and within an hour he confessed to his crimes. The confession would reveal what had happened to Vicki Weggerly on the morning of September 16th, 1986. Fucking insane that they, how did they find out she got a pap smear? I have no idea. That's, in, that's nuts. Like picture, picture you get arrested due to your daughter's pap smear. That's, <laughs> that's insane. At that point, it's like, you hate her. I'd be mad at her. <laughs> I did the crime. Well, also imagine being the daughter and being like, the police wanted what? Yeah, the police wanted my paps. I would think they were creepy. I'd be like, so what is happening with that pap smear? Like after it's right. gone, like, are you getting rid of it? Wait, dad, what did you do? That's like the craziest, I don't even know if it's like a Hail Mary, but that's like the craziest play to make. And also, the thing that is really funny, obviously, and you see a lot with like uh, serial criminals or serial killers, is that they're so overconfident mm -hmm. that they just are dumb. Yes. Yeah. Like somehow this person got away with a crime for 18 years and then he decides... I'm going to start leaving clues and taunting the police and dropping packages off. And I'm going to like trust the police when they say they can't trace this floppy disk back to me. And they're just like totally cool with that. <laughs> Which that part to me is like, I don't know. Why would you think they could like, that's the main thing that they would probably do. I, they could trace all this shit. If they found out who he was, right? Like if they found out this was him via the church meeting, right? Then they probably were just mm. watching the daughter for like a whole like a long time because they're like we can't too much put too much on him, but we can put something on the daughter because the daughter isn't really going to even be knowledgeable what's going on at all. So we can fall. I would mm. hope not. We could follow her, right? And then they see she went to the doctors, and then, I just don't know how they would like. They walk into the room after there and go like, "Here's like I'm a police officer. Like, what did that girl just come in here to do?" And they, were, <laughs> right. and they were like a pap smear. I need it. Like, what? <laughs> I don't know, dude. That would be, or they just go, I'll be right back. Don't you do anything with that pap smear. And he goes to get a court order. Like, I, that just sounds to me like it's insane. Like, I wish I could talk to the guy who had to go in and do it. Right. Because how do you get through it? It is pretty crazy. And what, what do you think the hospital was thinking, too? And they're like, can we get the pass mirror? And they're like, no. And they're like, okay, we're getting judges' orders in. And they're like, what's going on? Yeah, like, what did this... You need it that bad? Yeah, what did this girl do? Like, I'd be wondering, like, did I just deal with a bad person? Like, what is going on? Well, you think that they took all this DNA, 1,300 DNA samples from other suspects, basically? Not of a matter. No, not <laughs> that a... That is so much DNA to collect for not to matter. And do you... I wonder if... I'll have to look up this up, but I wonder if anyone got caught for a crime while being put through that. Like That'd on really accident. Funny. Like I don't someone know. who didn't even get like involved in this situation at all. And then he just got caught via that. Yeah. And also salute to you. I'm gonna pause really fast to people. Salute to Tom for not telling you who this is. If you caught on by now, you know your shit. But if you haven't, you're long for the ride. 
one final one, what happened on September 16th. In the weeks leading up to Vicky's demise, her killer began stalking her, a target he called Project Piano after the piano music that he frequently heard from outside the Weggerly home. The killer began learning the Weggerly's routines and identified when exactly she would be home alone, and on that fateful Tuesday morning in mid-September, he decided it was time to strike. Donning the uniform of a telephone repairman, the killer began walking the neighborhood knocking on doors to notify neighbors that telephone repairs were being made in the area. At last, he made it to the Weggerly residence, and as he approached, the sound of Vicky's piano playing emanating from her home confirmed that she was inside. He knocked on the door, identified himself as a telephone repairman, and asked if he could inspect the telephone lines inside. Vicky welcomed him in, not yet suspicious that this man was anything but who he said he was. He even walked over to the telephone and began to look it over with fake tools. But when Vicky dropped her guard, the killer drew a pistol and led Vicky into the bedroom where he tied her up. Vicky was very upset and still had a lot of fight, and she would actually break free from her restraints and fight with this man and yell about how her husband would be home soon. But eventually, she was overpowered and her killer would wrap a nylon sock around her neck and strangle her. Thinking that she was dead at this time, her killer styled her clothes and began taking pictures of her. But the sound of nearby dogs barking, mixed with Vicky's threat that her husband would be home soon, was enough for him to be frightened off. He grabbed Vicky's driver's license and her keys and drove away. The killer would park the car a few blocks away before finally heading home and disposing of his disguise. That's a different level of like to get somebody. Like, damn, going house to house. And then how did this not come up at all? Like, that's so weird that no one in the area would go like, oh, we, by the way, we had like a guy come and do a repair to the area. That's what I thought. Like that you would talk to neighbors and be like, did you see anybody? And they'd be like, yeah, this one guy, this telephone repairman came by, but that was it. If I'm the police, I guess, I maybe I can say this, not being a police officer and also not being involved in this case mm -hmm. and having all the other details. I'd be like, let's check in on what telephone repair facilities are like in the area and to start seeing if they were doing work, you know? Yeah. I feels like somehow that slipped through the cracks. Because yeah, I feel like at that point, then you would do... Once you line up and find that he's not really a, a repairman, then you're just like, well, then who the fuck was this guy? And then you start right. like digging from there. Like then you start to go like, okay, we need to just find who this guy is. Cause then that uh, completely would have eliminated Bill from the start. Right. Cause I feel like you would know he wasn't home. And why didn't his neighbors just say he wasn't home? It's crazy that he took, the, the killer took the car, the family car, and that he drove past Bill, who was probably then at that point 10 minutes, 15 minutes, if that, away from catching the killer. Like, he was, if he had gone home just a little bit earlier. Yeah. I, would have been totally prevented. And maybe, like, I don't know how he also wouldn't have just been like, I seen a guy pat. Like, I don't know. Like, because I feel like you recognize your vehicle. I mean, he did a test and said that he drove past the car and recognized that somebody other than his wife was driving. I don't know if it was just hard to, like, see exactly who it was or what, because you would think there's a world in which Aunt Vicky still unfortunately dies, but her neighbors say telephone repairman came by. Mm -hmm. You know, they check and go, there was no repairman in the area. There's nobody doing work in the area. Then Bill says, 
oh yeah, I saw this guy drive by in the Monte Carlo. He was wearing a repairman uniform, or it looked like he was wearing some kind of, you know, yeah. blue collar uniform. Yeah, and, they, and then they go, well, okay, you, we're, you're eliminated then because yeah, that tells us everything. The police are just really bad at their job, like up to like a time point. Like I think it's like up to like 2000, like probably around 04. Like prior to that, before DNA came in, it was like so like lock and key. For murders, it just kind of took them forever. Was it the husband? Not enough evidence? I got no idea. Yep, and it's just like, well, who knows? I guess this is going to be locked away for the next 30 years. For 18 years, he would get away with this killing. But as it would turn out, Vicki Weggerly was not his first nor his last victim. In January of 1974, he killed Joseph, Julie, Joseph Jr., and Josephine Otero. In March of 1974, he killed Catherine Bright. In March of 1977, he killed Shirley Relford. In December of 1977, he killed Nancy Fox. In April of 1985, he killed Maureen Hedge. And finally, in January of 1991, he claimed his last victim, Dolores Davis. During this reign of terror, he would develop some notable trademarks. He would almost always tie up and strangle his victims before posing and photographing their bodies. It wasn't until early 1978 when he sent a letter to a Wichita TV station where he claimed responsibility for the Otero murders and angrily asked how many people he would have to kill for his slangs to garner media attention before suggesting some nicknames. Chief among them was a nickname derived from his preferred method of killing, and for the first time, Wichita Police Chief Richard Lemunyan would identify him in a press conference by his chosen name, BTK. Dennis Rader would eventually be arrested in February of 2005, and four months later, he would plead guilty to the BTK killings, providing the court with explicit details of his acts. In August, Dennis Rader was sentenced to 10 consecutive life sentences without the possibility of parole. To this day, Rader remains alive in prison. I really do feel like he just wanted to be caught by the end. He definitely wanted to be recognized as, like, a genius criminal mastermind. Yeah. And I think he does, these deranged people think that, like, there's a degree that they will get respect for how good they were at killing. Because. That they just are like, sure, I'll get caught. But, like, they're going to kind of think it's chill, right? Yeah, they think they're going to become, like, a martyr or, like, a, you know, someone who's worshipped for it, which, you know, just... I, the way he went out, even if I was like a person who was like, oh, the serial killers, ah, like the way he went out, I just, it doesn't feel like that would be something that I would feel like I need to put him on a martyrdom. Like you look at another one, like uh, who at some point we might talk about, but I highly doubt it. But like a Jeffrey Dahmer, the way he got caught, it was like a, he got caught. Like it was, he, they, he didn't try to get caught. It just happened. Right. But with, like, BTK, like, BTK was kind of like, I dare you to catch me. I bet right. you can't. It's funny is that somebody else claimed one of his earliest correspondences with, like, media news, like, before he was identified and caught, like, back in the 70s, was somebody claimed responsibility for the Otero murders, which were the first batch of murders, and he was like, no. And then there were some other murders that happened later that they were like, Maybe BTK is doing this. 
And then he wrote them and was like, I didn't do those ones. I only, he's like, I want credit for the ones I did. I don't want credit for the ones I didn't. It's like, God I'm damn an it. honest killer. That wasn't me. You're not going to get, you're not going to just start <laughs> pulling names on me. Some of these I'll give you as me. I'll give you a few of these that are definitely me. Those people aren't mine. Just such a clown to me. And it's just, it's funny that he's in jail for a guy who was so close to being at the finish line where like you were just going to die gracefully and just nobody would know what you did. Not only is Dennis Rader still alive in prison, he's like pretty vocal. Like he does, he, he has done interviews uh, with like news outlets and actually very coincidentally, uh, when I was writing this, I was l obviously looking into him a whole lot. And there was news just from this week about Dennis Rader, where they had just arrested the Gilgo Beach murderer. Mm -hmm. And Dennis Rader commented on that. And he was like, I think this guy was definitely inspired by me. All of those killings match like kind of my style. Oh, and I was like, who, yeah. how, who's giving this guy the microphone? Yeah. Away. Dennis, get off the fucking kitchen, dude. Golly. Speaking of like never being caught. When he was caught, well, first of all, his wife got an emergency divorce, which is like a thing, I guess. Like a court order, immediate, just, yep, you're good. You're out of there. You're done. And then his daughter like would go on and say like she had no clue that obviously that he was a murderer, that she grew up. And she said that she pretty much lived a regular American life. Yeah. And she had no idea that her dad was like one of the most notorious serial killers in American history. And then just a few years ago i believe she actually wrote um a book a memoir or, or an autobiography of sorts that talks about her experience growing up with dennis rader as her father how she processed everything afterwards like all that she wrote a whole book about it and uh dennis rader of course commented on that and said that he was very proud of his daughter oh, and like Jesus. happy with the book and all sorts of stuff like that. he's like Look uh, but if you want some other like little Little tidbits that I'll throw in here that I didn't identify exactly. One of the clues that, you know, would give you, even if you didn't know this was BTK from the case, was that the name addressing the envelope to the reporter was Bill Thomas Kilman, which is the initials are BTK. Yeah. Um, the autobiography that he sent in to them was literally identified as like the autobiography of BTK. He pretty much, when he communicated with them, they knew that he was BTK communicating with them and he communicated with them as BTK. And so they pretty much knew the whole time BTK, or I guess eventually once Herslaviana got this mail, that Vicky Weggerly was one of the BTK victims. They just didn't know that Dennis Rader was BTK at the time. And part of that also was that the dolls that he sent in that were posed were posed like BTK victims. They were like bound and stuff like that. So. They they knew it was BTK. They just didn't know who BTK was. But it's pretty crazy that he was like, he sent in some mail and was like, here's some ideas for names you could give me. You know, I'll just throw some out there. And they were like, oh, yeah, that one actually is good. BTK, we're going to go with that one. He's like, you... <laughs> why did you give him the satisfaction? What you he's like, he's probably like BTK, Big Daddy Killer. Like, he just gave a list of names. <laughs> yeah. And they just said, oh, that BTK one, though. I like that. That kind of hits. Yeah. Well, <laughs> That's got a ring to it. And then what did he also come back? He's like, you know, that does kind of hit. I fuck with that. You guys. 
You guys should do the killing. Like, <laughs> what was he thinking? Like, he's such a. I do not. Do you think every time, every time someone calls him the BTK killer, he's like, "That's redundant. The K already stands for kill." Yeah, it's. I'm the BT. I'm just BTK. Maybe the maybe BTK strangler. I'm not BTK killer. Or or. Let's get it right, guys. I workshop this one for a while. Or if you're really, in the in the pen now, they call me BT killer. Oh. <laughs> As a police officer, this the they did the right thing on getting him to consistently talk to him. Usually as a killer, like you do certain things, like you know, Zodiac Killer gives him like a whole little fucking like scientific project to solve. You know, like that's a real thing. Mm-hmm. But then like this guy, it wasn't even that he needed to be found or it just felt like he wanted just to be seen. Like he didn't want it to be like a game. He was like, just please find me. Like, I, I'm sick of being a dad. I'm sick of this household. I'd <laughs> right. rather be in jail. And it's just, but he didn't want to, like, he wanted to justify himself not going there to be like, hey, it's me. I'm BTK. And they would have been like, who? A couple of things about his confession. He did confess in about an hour. And there's two funny parts, I think, about the confession, which is that they, the way that they got him to confess basically after an hour was that they were like, would it surprise you to know that the father of your daughter is BTK? And he was like, no, you got me. <laughs> and and he was like notably annoyed and frustrated that the police had lied to him about being able to track that floppy disk. He was like, I thought we had a good rapport going. I thought... <laughs> We were like all chill with each other. Oh, we were friends. And they're like, <laughs> yeah. They're like, nope. That was how this was. They're like, no, we're arresting you. Yeah, they're like, no, fuck you. First off, thank you for the report back and forth because that helped us catch your dumbass. But also, <laughs> that's just so bad. Like, imagine him going like, I am not, I am not involved in any of these murders. And then they go, Did you know the father of your daughter is the BTK killer? <laughs> And he probably went. That's like the most roundabout way of asking. We know. And he probably went. So first just say off, it, right? First off, first <laughs> off, it's not BTK killer. It's BTK. You don't need that killer. It's redundant. <laughs> and goddamn it, you got me. You got me. All these years, you got finally got me. One more thing uh, that I have that I just think is kind of interesting and disturbing. I obviously didn't go into the details of all of his other killings, but one of them is that I think is like particularly kind of crazy. The way that they tracked him, obviously initially to be like, we're pretty sure this is Dennis Rader before they get the DNA, was the floppy disk that led them to the Christ Lutheran Church. Mm-hmm. He actually, one of his victims, he actually like killed, strangled her, killed her, um, and then brought her body to the church and posed her there and then took pictures and then disposed of her body afterwards. How did he know no one was going to be there? That's, that's cr- crazy bold. That's so risky. Like, if anyone walked in, what was he going to do? He doesn't seem like the fighting type. Like, <laughs> no if you idea. look at a picture of him, he's not a squabber. It's just weird to see that they caught him. And you can tell, like, he's one of the few killers where you know. There's a strong chance that there's maybe not any other ones. Like, this might have been just all the ones he did. Because, like, the way right. he goes out and go, like, I didn't do that one. And you're not going to get me on this. Because that's not my work. Right. These are my work. Like, he's just hoping that Netflix does a show about him and they won't. 
he wasn't attractive or nothing. It's not like, you know, Ted Bundy. And Ted Bundy's not even attractive. What people think. That'll do it for this episode of Conspiracy Club. I think that what Amir and I have talked about is that these episodes about how killers and criminals got caught, their one last crime, we're going to return to these every so often with new coverage and they'll all be presented in this manner where we'll go through the story and then we'll reveal who the killer is at the end. And so next time we do this, keep that in mind and you can try to you know guess along with Amir. Anyways, you can join the club by following us on Instagram at Tom and Amir. Once again, we are back and we thank you all for listening so much. We appreciate it. If you enjoy this episode, enjoy this podcast, feel free to leave us a rating or review on whatever podcasting platform you use, that kind of stuff. Word of mouth. It's really good for getting other listeners here, but thank you all so much. Amir, you want to leave people with anything in particular? Please leave a review. I need a review. Amir doesn't eat unless you leave a review. Yeah, give me a review. Just give me, for my self-esteem, give me a review that says, you know that guy, Amir, you did pretty good. You know? <laughs> give me a moment. All right, everybody. I'll give, see you next me, next time. No, oh. One more. One more thing. Give, okay. give us two reviews. We'll drop the next episode quicker. That's right. If we need, see two re- new reviews. Two, drop it quicker. And it'll be out there. Now listen to me. Who do you think <laughs> is in control when this shit drops? <laughs> Not Tom. You know what? Me now. Dude, I don't know what the fuck you're doing, man. It's <clears throat> <laughs> directed towards me. Oh, I forgot to say, too, because this is our first episode back. That is a new button for our soundboard that uh, is a voicemail that was lovingly left for us by, I think, a fan. Someone yeah. that really likes our work. Someone in between that time while we were gone left us a voicemail saying that we didn't know what we were talking about. And there's other ones, you know. Maybe we'll let you hear those too at some point. Hey, maybe if you leave us a voicemail, it might make it on the air. And I think you can leave voicemails through Spotify. So, hey, we're not saying not to do it. We might get you on the air. Yeah. We'll at least discuss it. You know, we'll at least <laughs> bring it up. Me and them will talk about the voicemail. Uh, know we heard it. It might not end up on here, but we'll hear it. all right everybody thank you so much for listening again uh we will catch you next time